Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. I was uh, earlier this morning reading a story on globalnews.ca, and boy, it, um, it raises so many significantly important, critically important questions. And the headline of the story is, Did we miss the Nova Scotia shooting warning signs or dismiss them? And that's a critical question. Jane Gerster is a features reporter with Global News, and she joins us uh, on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Jane, as you uh, start in your in your piece, and it, boy, it just, it just asks so many questions. What we know about what happened in Nova Scotia is recounted by the RCMP. But your story raises questions about some, as we said, extremely important issues we know very little about or maybe nothing about. And it takes us back to the issue of domestic violence and how that played into this horrific scenario. Would you start us off, please, on that? Yeah, of course. So I just want to be clear because, I mean, I think sometimes people here in domestic violence know we're talking about, you know, 22 people who've been killed. Um, But the reality is that domestic violence is one of the largest warning signs for mass murder. It is in 70% of all documented cases. So it is a really important issue to look at. And statistically, police don't do a great job of investigating domestic violence. So that is why you are seeing so many advocates and researchers trying to raise this issue right now. And domestic violence was very much at the uh, present at the beginning of this killer's horrible uh, actions. Um, I'm sorry. No, I was just going to say absolutely, and I mean we have we have so much evidence to suggest that domestic violence played a role in his life. You know, for the last two decades. You know, we have we have neighbors who say they've witnessed him abusing his partner. We have his, his uncle saying he witnessed him abusing his partner. So this is certainly not a one-off occurrence. And you also write that the uh, that this mass murderer's female partner did what she did when she was assaulted by him uh, prior to his mur- murderous carnage is telling. She ran into the woods to hide. She didn't go to seek help from others. She ran away from it. Absolutely. And that's something that Betty Jo Barrett, who is uh, a feminist and a professor um, at the University of Windsor, talks a lot about. To her, that was a really, really telling sign because it meant that she didn't feel like there were people around her who could help. Now, obviously, you know, Betty Jo Barrett wasn't there. We weren't there. This woman was there by herself. So we don't we don't know what was going through her head. But we do know that you know, there has been this pervasive issue of silence around domestic violence and people not being sure how they can interact and how they can ask their neighbors if they need help or what even the kind of help that their neighbors might need is. And that those are all factors in why someone might, you know, run into the woods as opposed to, you know, running to someone who could help them. Mm-hmm. And, and there were domestic violence issues involving the killer dating back almost 20 years. Yeah, absolutely. So I spoke with I spoke with one of his former neighbors, Brenda Forbes, this week, who moved in to Portapique around 2002 and moved out in 2014, specifically because she just didn't feel safe around him anymore. Um, and she she you know his partner once ran to her house after she was beaten to escape. Um, her partner, you know, she had heard stories from his uncle that she reported to the RCMP back in 2013 of a brutal beating. So, you know. 
there is a lot of evidence that now people are sort of trying to trying to understand and contextualize a bit more. Yeah, I, I, something else I learned in your uh, in your piece: domestic violence is reported in one of every four police reported violent crimes. And uh, we really should see this as an early warning system for more broad and grotesque violence potentially developing. And as, as you said, this uh, he had a history of almost 20 years of domestic violence. And then when it goes into the justice system, the Canadian justice system, and I've talked about this issue previously on the program, but you raise it in your story, it really becomes, it pits one person against the other, and it certainly puts one at a, at a disadvantage, and the person who's been beaten and the person who's been subjected to domestic violence would be the person I would imagine who, at least emotionally, be at a significant disadvantage. You know, it's, it's really interesting because a lot of these cases don't actually appear to go through criminal courts. They go through family courts. And one of the things that, you know, researchers and family courts have really looked at is, is the fact that, you know, mostly women, but in some cases, yes, men are the victims of domestic abuse. Um, but statistically, it's mostly women. And they are mostly told not to bring it up in court because it'll actually not play in their favor. It might be something that is used against them to give their ex-partner more custody or, you know, more more support. So it, it puts people in this really, you know, tricky situation where we are saying, hey, this is the biggest warning sign. So obviously we want people to come forward so we can catch it. But then at the same time, there's that disconnect. And when they do come forward in other situations, they're either not believed or they're finding that turns around and has worse repercussions on their life. Uh, even the, uh, the killer's partner, the woman who escaped into the woods, she was attacked online. Yeah, unfortunately, shame is, is a huge part of this. And, you know, we saw it with the GoFundMe that was originally put up by a friend of the partner to support her in her recovery, because obviously she's going to have a long recovery from this. Um, and it was taken down, ultimately. There were a lot of, you know, people blaming her. And, you know, um, Carol Ann Souffrant, who's this really excellent researcher um, based in Ottawa, talked a lot about this, where it's a catch-22 for women. They say, you know, you're blamed if you stay and endure that abuse, which his partner did for more than a decade. But then you leave and you hide in the woods overnight and you're still blamed. Yeah. It was just a, just a horrific series of... Uh of incidents, obviously, and and it began with this uh, with this domestic violence assault. Now, Bill Blair, the federal public safety minister, is promising a red flag law. What's that about? Yeah, so there's a version of a red flag law that exists in many of the states in the U.S. Um, and broadly speaking, it would allow um, basically if you you know if you're concerned about domestic abuse and access to weapons uh, for someone in your family or your community or if you're a healthcare professional the idea is to allow you know not just a registered doctor to report it but to allow the community to report it as well you know and some people are very pro those some people you know have their concerns some of their reservations have to do with the fact that it tends to focus really narrowly on um, on, on, on guns in particular and that's not always uh, statistically, men are more likely to be the victims of abuse with weapons than women. Women are most likely being abused in other ways or being abused with uh, a man's body. Um, so it's, you know, it's kind of a mixed, a mixed reaction from people as to whether or not that will help. And we haven't really had, you know, any details beyond we're going to be looking at it from Bill Blair. 
Well, we certainly have to do more than look at it, given what we know, given what's exp- what's happened. And uh, and, and then this, there's the statistic, as you point out, again, on Global News, 70% of domestic violence cases go unreported. Yeah, that's um, the unfortunate reality is a lot of violent crimes against women go unreported. I mean, we saw that before with sexual assault before Me Too. And then we saw after Me Too, there was just, you know, that flood, that increase in demand for support and services. Um, but, you know, if you talk to almost any researcher in this field, they will say to you, you know, a lot of people don't want to come forward because they've seen how how it affects their life, you know, in more negative ways, how maybe it leads to their children being taken away from them or, you know, maybe it leaves them without a home and without money or maybe they're not believed, you know. So it really, it's, it's a complicated issue. And I think that's sort of the crux of the issue here for a lot of the researchers is how do we say, you know, take a step back and look at the bigger picture as opposed to just treating it as one mass shooting after another. Do you think things will change in 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 the short term? Do you think there's enough impetus, enough uh, despair, enough horror at what happened and understanding now the, the bigger picture, at least somewhat, that some significant change will take place, meaningful change will take place in the short term? You know, I have a very bad betting track record, so I won't subject you to that. But I will say, just from the people I've been really, the experts I've been really fortunate to interview, um, there is an incredible group of people, groups of people across the country who are working really hard to make change and to make people aware. And, you know, most of the advancements that we've seen in our society in the last 40 years result from, from feminist women. There's so many studies showing that. So... Um, while I don't have a crystal ball, I can say that um, I wouldn't I wouldn't count change out. Good. Well, we need to we need to we need to understand what has to be done, and we do know what has happened. Jane, just a, a very thought provoking, uh, just a great piece of journalism. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Jane Gerster, features reporter with Global News. Did we miss the Nova Scotia shooting warning signs, or dismiss them? Matthew Fisher, 35 years, foreign correspondent, global news contributor who was in Hong Kong for the 1997 handover of the former UK colony to China. You can follow Matthew on Twitter at mfisheroverseas. Uh, Matthew's uh, most recent column, this week's column for globalnews.ca, China shows off military strength as Beijing eyes new rules for Hong Kong. Matthew, thanks for the time. And, and the first question is, what's with the military hardware displays by the United States and China with a pointy end directed toward each other? Well, I think it's part of the coronavirus fallout. You wouldn't normally think that military actions would be part of this, nor would you think that uh, that um, legal actions are giving the Hong Kong government fewer powers and appropriating more to Beijing would be the natural consequence of coronavirus. But there it is. What happened beginning... Uh, about four or six weeks ago uh, in the South China Sea and in the East China Sea was that China put more warships out there. Uh, they began uh, or continued but accelerated their harassment of a Vietnamese oil rig in the South China Sea. Uh, they went after fishermen from Malaysia, Indonesia, and the Philippines, and also uh, there's a fantastic number of incursions into Japanese territorial waters 
uh, in the East China Sea, 1,000 of them last year, 999 to be exact. Those were increased, and they came closer. On top of that, they put their warships uh, closer than ever before to the Taiwan Straits, flew simulated bombing runs against uh, Taiwan. And the Americans, of course, have responded. Uh, the Americans uh, put more warships through on freedom of navigation operations in the South China Sea. There are, I believe, five warships there now. There are two U.S. warships, aircraft carriers, in the Philippine Sea, and most ominously at all, and the one that I'm sure got the attention of the Japanese or the Chinese admirals and generals, was that the U.S. has flushed its submarines from their uh, bases in Guam and uh, California and Hawaii, and uh, pretty much every submarine the U.S. has is out in the Western Pacific. And they announced this. They declared it. Of course, usually sub-ops are top, top, top secret. But uh, they have 100-class submarines out there, uh, attack submarines, and uh, sort of daring China to take things one step further with Taiwan. And that was before Hong Kong. I imagine that there will be a further ratcheting up of this. Uh, it can be a dangerous game of chicken when that many uh, forces are out there on the high seas. Absolutely. Now, when you mention Hong Kong, um, the Beijing Communist Party, just have the sense, Matthew, you know the area well. You were there in 97 for the handover. Uh, you have the feeling that Beijing is going to crush the last vestiges of democracy in China. Is that is that fact? I sure think it is. It's most unfortunate, but the truth of the matter is they've been stripping away at the democratic uh, powers uh, in Hong Kong for a long time. In 1997, during the handover, uh, China pledged that there would be one country but two totally separate economic and political systems, judiciary, judicial systems. They have not kept uh, that promise at all, and now they've just totally thrown it away. That agreement was supposed to last until 2047. So just before that agreement's half done, they have totally walked away from it. This is of a piece with many other things they're doing. And two things irritate China in the world. One is Taiwan's existence and its uh, uh, continuing idea that they're a separate state, which of course they are. And the second is uh, Hong Kong. And they were flabbergasted and furious at all the demonstrations last year, which they saw as a direct threat to the power of their leader, Xi Jinping. And they were going to do something about it. We've known that for a long time. They've, this is what they've chosen to do. But the next step beyond this is if there are protests, now they will use the force of law and say, well, there are actually laws about that and lock up lots of people. And when China locks people up, we've seen that with the Uyghurs and in Western China, a million people go off to re-education camps. And what we have got to think about is the consequences for Canada, Roy, because 300,000 people who live in Hong Kong have Canadian passports. They all have relatives. And I'm guessing that a million or more people in the next few months or year or two will want to come to Canada. And uh, we already have economic problems of, of our own. This will add a, a new element to the stew. It really is a very troubling, disturbing, worrisome, whatever the adjective is, uh, situation that's developing 
in uh, in the area, and specifically with Hong Kong. We'll see you over the next couple of days what happens as far as protests are concerned in Hong Kong. Matthew, thank you so much. I'm going to pick this up with you again tomorrow. Thanks for the time today. Thank you. All the best. Matthew Fisher at M. Fisher Overseas on Twitter, 35 years foreign correspondent, and Matthew's column on globalnews.ca. China shows off military strength as Beijing eyes new rules for Hong Kong. The big story and the one that we all, of course, pay attention to significantly is the uh, COVID-19 and the numbers that we have. Uh, Canada today uh, has a record of 82,892 cases, 412 new ones, and uh, the total deaths in this country, 6,277. There are 27 new deaths, and 42,973 have recovered. We're joined by Dr. Isaac Bogosh. Infectious Diseases Specialist and a Doctor at Toronto General Hospital and Professor at the University of Toronto. Dr. Bogosh is very good to us with his time. He joins us each week to give us the most recent updates on on what's developing. Dr. Bogosh, thank you for the time. We've been hearing again about the potential for a vaccine before the end of the year. Dr. Fauci in the United States has said that's a possibility. Where do you stand on that today? Uh, you know, I think it's certainly a possibility, but I also think we have to be realistic and and it very well may not pan out there's tons of groups working on vaccines some of them are even uh in early clinical trials some are in we'll have results of some pretty uh, more advanced ones by uh mid-june to late june i think we also have to be prepared that it might take a little bit longer and it might be sometime in 2021 uh or or even perhaps later in a perfect world if everything works out yeah maybe by the end of this year how are we doing as far as getting on with our lives, as far as controlling what's happening around us as much as we can, how are we doing as a country? I know it's hard to believe because we're all hip deep in this, and this has really affected every single one of us. But if we sort of dissociate our, from ourselves, take a look at the 30,000-foot view, look at how Canada's doing, and look at how we're doing compared to the rest of the world, even compared to comparable countries we're actually doing pretty well. Of course, we can do better. Of course, there's things we did wrong. Of course, we can improve. But we're actually still doing pretty well. I mean, yeah, those case numbers sound high. Those deaths are all uh, sad, unfortunate, and many of them could have been prevented. Uh, But relative to the rest of the world, believe it or not, we're doing all right. Yeah, I mean, I have so many questions. I have as time passes, I just have more questions. And in my commentary, I pointed to the fact that the official position on masks, on wearing masks, has changed repeatedly. Um, meanwhile, we have uh, in Asia, we have uh, doctors who do what you do, who have said that it's common sense to wear masks. But we've been on both sides of that fence, depending on what month it is. Now, the official position has changed again about wearing masks. Do we really know what we're doing? Yes, we do. So let's just be clear for a second. In January and February, the question we were asking ourselves was, if I wear a mask, will I protect myself from getting COVID-19? We have to be very clear about what the questions were. And the answer in January and February was, no, you don't need to. Like, there was a handful of cases in Canada. The probability of anyone getting this infection in Canada was slim to none. And we know that masks don't really help 
reduce people, don't re- essentially reduce the risk that much of people getting this infection. They just don't. And we can get into that if we want to. But as the epidemic progressed in Canada, and as we had a greater burden of cases in Canada, so in March, and actually closer to actually in April, and in May, the question changed. And the question was, hey, if we all wear masks, will we prevent the spread of this infection in Canada? And the answer is, sort of. <laughs> That's the answer. The answer is, listen, if you're in a setting where you can't practice physical distancing, usually it's indoors, yeah, wearing a mask is possibly a helpful tool, I'm being careful with my words, to help prevent the spread of this infection. So it was suggested in early April, and then it was recommended uh, last week. They never said you have to. It it went from a suggestion in April, I believe it was April 6th, to a recommendation. And, And they were very clear. These are in settings where you may not be able to practice physical distancing measures because we know more about this virus. We know how it's transmitted. We know who gets it. We know areas that are higher risk. I think that's very reasonable. Like, do you need to wear this while you're walking outside in a park by yourself? No, you're not protecting anybody. You can if you want to. There's no harm. There's no shame. Uh, But if you don't want to, that's okay as well. But if you're, you know, in a packed grocery store, and I know they're all supposed to be limiting the number of people inside, but, you know, despite everyone's goodwill, sometimes this happens. Or if you're in an office building and there's just people are going back to work and there just seems to be a lot of people in there and, you know, you're just not able to practice physical distancing despite everyone's goodwill. Yeah, those are settings where you could consider wearing a mask, where it might help. But we have to remember, you're preventing the spread from... I I understand. I understand. People are looking for consistency in messaging. And, uh, you know, we have the predictions now of a second wave of coronavirus by experts. Uh, epidemiological modeling that happened months ago, a couple of months ago, was overly dire, and now 400,000-plus Canadians uh, have had elective surgeries cancelled. And these are surgeries, as the president of the Canadian Medical Association pointed out on this program last week, might involve coronary surgeries, heart surgeries, which are not necessarily an emergency on the day they're scheduled, but may well be two weeks later. What's the lesson here heading toward... Uh, what experts predict will be a second wave of coronavirus. If we couldn't trust the modeling, if the modeling didn't turn out well the first time, are we going to be any better the second time? Listen, no one would bat an eye if there was a second wave. All a second wave is when we see the cases go down, will we see a bump in the number of cases as we move forward? Mm-hmm. It's, almost, it's, it's certainly going to happen. It's going to happen somewhere in Canada. It may even be happening now in Toronto. We're not entirely <laughs> sure. We have to see how this pans out. But, but I think the key is how big is that bump going to be? But are we, doing the, are, we doing, are we doing the responsible thing? 400,000 surgeries were canceled. By mid-June, it'll be 400,000. This is according to a peer-reviewed um, scientific report yeah. from the UK. No, but this is the paradox, right? This is the paradox. If we're, the whole point of this lockdown, the whole point of this was so that we don't overwhelm the healthcare system. And by and large, if that was the mission, mission accomplished. Our healthcare system was not overwhelmed. You look at a place like New York or Northern Italy or Wuhan, and you can see the terrible death toll that happens when the healthcare system is overwhelmed. It's not just death from COVID. No, I, I understand. I understand what you're saying. I'm not. I'm not arguing. I'm not arguing with you. I appreciate you coming on the show, but we have 400,000 surgeries that were canceled. Yeah. Because because the modeling was incorrect. So what we're looking for is. Do you think so? Though? Uh, like I mean, not to push you on air, but like. Yeah, I do. The, the whole point was 
to lock down so that we would have this capacity. And luckily, because we were successful, we didn't need that. Luckily, we didn't need that extra capacity. Well, it seems if you have 400,000 uh, surgeries that are canceled and people are, quite a few people are in difficult situations now, that there was an overreaction. Now, I get what you're saying, but all I'm, what, what, what I'm saying is if we're looking ahead at a second wave, yeah, then we have yeah. to be more accurate this time so we don't have a repeat. Is that yeah. possible, right? Yeah. I, I think so. I, I really think so. And, you know, if we have the tools in place to prevent that second wave from being extraordinarily large, uh, meaning we have access to diagnostic testing and we have the contact tracing, we have the capabilities to snuff out this infection where it pops up. If we, if we do that well, we can certainly either prevent or, or limit the size of a second wave. And hopefully we can carry on as close to normal as possible as we're in this pre-vaccine era. Uh, if we don't do that well, you know, then we'll, it would come to no one's surprise that we see a bigger second wave. And, uh, and, you know, we sadly might need to have to clamp back down with those public health restrictions in order to prevent the healthcare system from getting overwhelmed. And I, I think think at all costs, we've got to prevent the New York style situation. But that doesn't mean we're on lockdown for, in, uh, forever. Of course, yeah. we got to open up. We just have to do it safely. Uh, I have 45 seconds here and it deserves more, but I have to ask you about the, hydroxychloroquine story and i'm going to be speaking with a um with a patient who requires the hydroxychloroquine boy i said it twice in a row um later on in the show today and has having trouble getting it but mm. where where do we stand with this what's what's the bottom line on on this hydroxychloroquine so, to date it doesn't appear that it's going to be that effective i appreciate that people have strong opinions i'm just going by what the data shows um but you know what? We'll have much better definitive data as the new as these clinical trials that are well designed, designed to answer that question explicitly, come out. The incomplete data we have to date points in an arrow typically away from this being helpful. I'm totally open minded. I want this to work just as much as the next person, but I want to also be guided by high quality data. Uh, the data they're, they're looking at this drug to prevent the infection. They're looking for the use of this drug in mild infections. They're looking for the use of this drug in severe infections. Right. And we will have that information probably in the coming weeks. Dr. Bogosh, always good talking to you. Thank you so much for the time. Have a great, have a great weekend. You too. Dr. Isaac Bogosh, infectious diseases specialist. I was reading two uh, op-ed pieces in the Washington Post. Uh, the first is Stop Hoarding Hydro... I can't say it anymore. Hydroxychloroquine. Uh, many Americans, including me, need it. And the second uh, op-ed is, I have no choice but to take hydroxychloroquine. Trump has a choice. Stacy Torres joins us. She's an assistant professor of sociology at the University of California in San Francisco. And Professor Torres wrote the uh, the op-ed pieces. Professor, thank you very much for, uh, for coming on the program. I understand that you have an autoimmune issue and uh, disorder. And how important is the hydro... Uh, hydroxychloroquine to you and to your life. Well, thanks so much for uh, having me on. So, uh, yes, I have an autoimmune condition called Sjogren's, and I've had it now diagnosed for the last 14 years, and that's how long I've taken hydroxychloroquine. And really, it means the difference between uh, basic functioning and not uh, without it. And I did have a period of a couple months 
at some point in my life when I didn't have health insurance and I couldn't obtain this medication. And I felt like every morning when I was trying to get out of bed that, you know, cinder cinder blocks were weighing me down. And um, so in addition to fatigue, I have a disease which attacks my um, eye glands and my uh, salivary glands. And so it's like causes incredible dry mouth and uh, I, you know, it's harder and harder to produce tears basically. And these are basic functions that you don't, um, you don't really think of unless you have a problem with them and then you think about them a lot. So it really has um, controlled uh, some of the worst symptoms for me. So what's happening when you try to get an adequate supply of the medication? What's happening now? So uh, basically, we've had some spikes in the number of prescriptions since um, our president has been um, touting hydroxychloroquine as a possible miracle cure or treatment for COVID-19. And so the first kind of danger in terms of me being very worried about obtaining my regular prescription happened in March when it first appeared in the, in the daily briefings from the White House. And I was told point blank that the pills were on back order and that they were going to be difficult to obtain. And then I was able to call around and finally obtain a three-month supply. And just as when I had left my guard down, I thought we were out of the woods because it had um, receded from the news and there was more attention put on this other drug, remdesivir, as a potential treatment. Um, the president announced that he is taking this drug and uh, I have right now two months supply, and I just am, you know, concerned now that there's really no rest, no predicting, you know, what supplies I will have available yeah. to me. So I'm on the edge of my seat again. This must be uh, really uh, alarming and actually uh, terrifying to not know whether the medication that you require to make your life livable uh, is going to be available or not because people are hoarding it and because uh, President Trump is saying, uh, well, you know, you take it as a as a prophylactic for COVID-19 and studies say that that's just not the point. It, well, that's exactly so. And it's not just people with my autoimmune condition, but there are millions of us who have uh, lupus and uh, rheumatoid arthritis. There's so many different conditions where we have an immune system that basically overreacts and we need something to modulate our immune systems. And uh, the, the real frustration is, yeah, it, it, it was something that completely came out of left field. You know, I heard this medication, uh, hydroxychloroquine, and I thought, oh, my gosh, now people know about this. What are the consequences for me? But this is not like toilet paper or cleaning products. This is something that means uh, the difference between a, a, a decent quality of life and no quality of life and even life and death for, for patients. And we know the risks of not having this medication. Mm -hmm. is, the, uh, is the supply then uh, something that's so finite that it can only, what, create or, or manufacture a certain amount on, in any given time and, uh, and that's supposed to last everyone, but under current conditions and people hoarding it, it's not possible. Is that, is that the scenario generally? Yeah, I mean, the challenge is, so you, to step up production of a medication right now that had formerly not been in so much demand, that's not such an easy task. And there was some news about this back in, uh, I believe it was early April, about even India, which produces a lot of the chemical compounds that we need to make this medication, that they were going to reduce um, access. And so it's like we were having a, a, a potential shortage from the source. 
for this medication. And um, the last that I had seen, they had reversed course and said, okay, they were going to allow um, export of this compound. But it's not so easy to ramp up production. Right. There have been efforts um, to do so for certain trials, but there's still, you know, a limited supply for yeah. high demand. Professor Torres, I, I wish you all the best. Uh, thank you for joining us. It's a, it's a very important issue. We've just been talking about medication that is uh, not available in your case and not made available to patients in the previous segment that we aired. All the very best. Thank you for the time. Thank you so much. Uh, Professor Stacy Torres from uh, the University of California in San Francisco. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 